Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast. This is episode number 25. As always, I am your co-host, Dr. David Noe. I'm here with my good friend, Jeff Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great. How about you, Dave? Real well. We're here in the Vomitorium, situated by the lake in Grand Rapids. And uh, the weather still continues to be nasty, doesn't it? Yes. Winter showing no signs of, of letting up. Ice, ice dams on roofs. Snow. Snow. Hatchet weather, we ha- could it say. It is hatchet, ice breaking weather absolutely but we have a very special guest today don't we We do treat for our listeners yes well you're gonna tell us who that (laughs) guest is so we are very pleased to welcome the actual first live guest here in the studios and this is our good friend and colleague gary schmidt gary how are you this afternoon good good i've been the one with the hatchet lately (laughs) which is what we're referring to that's right. But I am good. It's nice to be warm. So we're very glad to have you here, Gary. Gary is a uh, New York Times bestselling children's author. He's author of many wonderful, really interesting books. Jeff, you've read some of those, haven't I you? Have. I my have. I have three uh, young boys, and they all love your books. We just I just finished reading uh, Wednesday Wars with my, my oh, middle yeah. son, and it was great. Yeah, he loved it. Yes, yeah, absolutely brilliant books. I've been reading lately to try to prepare for this and uh, read Trouble and uh, Okay For Now. Okay For Now was the funniest easily to my mind. Trouble was the most moving. But Gary, we're real glad to have you here this afternoon. Oh, it's great to be on, on episode 25. I yes. It's like a cool milestone. It is, a, it is a landmark episode. Yeah, yeah. This is cool. the silver. Yeah, I didn't think we'd get past three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so as we get started, we want to give our usual shout out to one of our loyal listeners. And this one goes to uh, Mrs. Kathy Meather, who is listening in Oviedo, Florida. Oh, excellent. Uh, and do you know Kathy personally? Yes, or? Kathy's a, a close personal friend, and it was she who actually turned me on to Gary's books. You'd think, being his colleague here in the same area, I would have done What's my wrong homework. What's with you? <laughs> Many things, but <laughs> the episode is only 45 minutes, so we're going to have to not talk about all that. Yeah. I, was, I was just down in Oviedo two weeks ago. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was warm. Yes. It was really quite sweet. Yeah, it's really nice. And Kathy Very said, nice. you you got to check out these books. They're just so poignant and uh I like a poignant book. So hello, Kathy. Thanks for listening. And uh, thanks to all our other listeners. Yes. Thanks, Kathy. All right. Let's, let's get into things. So, so Gary, as we were talking just before we hit the record button, um, one of the things that we'd, uh, we'd love to hear from you is how or if kind of the, the role of the classics are, you know, what of the classics you were maybe drawn to as a kid and how that has influenced your own career as, as a writer and as a teacher. And, and I mean, that's a huge, broad question, but yeah. yeah. Do I, I, I suppose we're defining classics as Western or how are we, how we define Both David and I are classicists, so we're okay, kind of so using kind of the, the academic um, uh, definition of, of kind of the, the, sure. the Greco-Roman sure, classics. Sure, And we're happy to make that definition broader, but just in terms of what we know the most about sure. uh, and can share with the audience, the Greco-Roman classics. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps this is surprising, but I actually remember really vividly first reading Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, they were Penguin classics, yeah. those editions. So I, have, I don't even know who the translator was now. I can remember that the Iliad was frustrating because somehow the binding broke halfway through <laughs> and all the last 150 pages were, were free, were loose. <laughs> <laughs> so I was turning over one page at a time. I remember being determined to get through it. It was this one summer. I was probably end of middle school or beginning of 
high school, um, where I decided that I wanted to read several series. So that was the first, Lord of the Rings was second, and Dante was third. Oh. And I thought that would be really quite an amazing thing to, to finish all those. On the Iliad, I just sort of plowed through it. I remember not liking it all that much. Yeah. Um, not liking the characters. Hmm. And I thought that I should like Achilles, and I didn't. I just didn't like him. Um, and didn't really connect with him. Which is obvious now, right? I mean, he's just sort of a jerk at times. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Then I got to Odyssey, and that was fantastic. And mm. I thought that, um, I, when I look back on that, I think it has to do with the structure. Hmm. So that you have this journey motif, which lasts, what, the 10 years or 20 years? 10 years? T- these 10 years ten at years. war and then 10 years back, ho- back, right. back home. Okay. Yep. Yep. So that journey from, from Troy back home um, was so interesting, and it was so organized in a sense, and I love that. And I didn't find that in the Iliad, mm-hmm. but I really did find that in, that in this one. And that was important for me. And to go from that then to Lord of the Rings, which I really read because I liked this girl in class, and she had read it seven <laughs> times, and I thought, okay. Um, and which I got over my parents' objections, because in a bookstore, it was in a, um, an area labeled adult fantasy, and oh, my parents yeah. thought it was porn. <laughs> that, that sounds really off-putting. <laughs> <laughs> and if you remember, those old paperback editions were kind of strange in the illustrations. Sure. <laughs> um, but to go from Odyssey, where you've got that long journey motif, then to go to Lord of the Rings with mm. a very similar set of um, journeys, that was pretty enlightening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to Dante. Loved Inferno. I remember loving the Inferno. Okay with Purgatorio. Wasn't interested at all in Paradise. Just didn't enjoy that one. Hmm. But again, it's the same idea of a motif. And I do think that that has probably influenced me. Though I haven't done a sort of journey, a big epic journey at all ever as a writer. It does seem to me that the journeys that I want to put into the books are epic, but they're interior journeys. Yeah. I definitely noticed that. Yeah, so that's that's sort of what I'm trying to do in just about all the books. Is that a direct one-to-one correspondence? I don't know. And I'm not sure about that, but I do remember that summer really vividly um, going through all of those texts. That's hmm. really interesting. I mean that that you that you came to them on your own. Um, they hmm. weren't pounded into you as a from from a teacher to student. Um, well, except for Lorraine, who was reading Lord of the Rings, and you know, I had well, to read oh yes, right, 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 right. right. So she provided the <laughs> external incentives. <laughs> the external, yes, right. absolutely. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, it was it was not something through school or, or through classes or even an adult sort of supervisor or mentor. It was just those are the three kind of series that I wanted to maybe conquer. Maybe that's not mm-hmm. the right word, but certainly read through. Yeah. So, so you've summer. been a you've been not only a writer for many years, but like ourselves, a teacher. Have you ever taught the Iliad in the classroom? Never have. No. I've never done that. Okay. Um, boy, now that you say that, that's what, because there's the new edition out of this recently. I, now that you say that, that does sound sort of challenging. Well, I wonder if you would have a, I'm only asking because I'm wondering if you'd have a different perspective. Yeah. W- one of the really interesting things about Homer that Aristotle mentions, we've said it on air many times, is the Odyssey was written when Homer was an old man and uh-huh. the Iliad was written when he was a young man. And so I just wonder if there's a change in one's appreciation of literature over time, a, a, a change significant enough sure. that one would like something that wasn't appealing at first. Oh, uh, absolutely, that's possible. Um, I think I would, if I reread Dante and tried to teach that, I think that would be easier for me and more delightful. Mm. I think I would like Paradise a little bit more. That's mm. a, good, a good point. Are there, are there texts that you've taught um, like for, like throughout your career that if you look back, you... 
appreciate them more or you're just dead sick of them? Um, you know, as you kind of look back, your interpretation has changed as you've gotten older. Yeah. Um, the one that I'm tired of and that I probably won't teach again for a while is King Lear. Really? Sort of done. Sort of done with it. It's, the, uh, it's so unrelieved all the way through. And you get to the end and he walks in with the dead body of Cordelia and you just go, oh, okay. <laughs> you, let's go home and have some soup or something. So when you say unrelieved, you, you mean the, the, the tension and the characters, they feel unresolved? Is and that the, the decline. Okay. The decline. Every scene is a movement downward, downward, until you literally have a, a movement down to death. Hmm. And he has to pick her up. He comes in with her body. Um, that It just feels like that. that is every single time. Even the, the fool, when he gives his funny lines... Even those have a kind of macabre quality to them that I'm just, okay, I've done it for a long time. I think I can live right. without teaching that right. one. The flip side is actually Genesis. I taught a course recently where we were looking at the literary genres, and we framed that through reading through Genesis. And there's this um, translation and notes by Robert Alter ah. that is Oh, you, so you know this one. I've it's, been reading him lately, it actually. It's out of this world, isn't it's it? It's incredible, it's yeah. It's an extraordinary... The art of biblical narrative. Incredible. The and when you wrote. read through it, when you read the text, um, you don't know, you're, you're, sh- you're not sure if you should read the text of Genesis or you should read the footnotes beneath it. Right. Because they're equally fascinating. It felt like I was reading it for the first time. Mm. It was, I, And I haven't had that experience in a very long time. Mm. Um, so I've now read all of his translations in the Pentateuch, and yeah. uh, he's got the Psalms out. History books are out, I think. But I find them fascinating. So that I would—that's the sort of newer one. You know, as a kid, you read through it from the very get-go, right? Right. And so the stories are so oh familiar. Um, but when you reread them now, or at least in his his translation, you really do feel like oh, I'm encountering them in a completely different way, um, with his focus on linguistics. Mm-hmm. Can you give an example, like from so like something just from Genesis that really struck you as like a, you had not the seen business, it? That and I know others know this, but the whole meaning of Adam, the fact that this is not necessarily a masculine individual figure, but that is in fact a, a human being, um, which he really works at hard. Um, he also looks at a number of hard, hard things to reconcile. So, for example, in his translation of uh, is Samuel or Kings, um, he talks about the Goliath story, mm-hmm. which is yeah, fascinating. But then shows the second the second version of that. There are two versions of the same story, and you know, Baptist kid growing up, there's a way of looking at scripture which means to me that I mean, it has to be infallible, right? As, right. A, as a kid growing up, and suddenly you look at this text and you see, well, something's off here. There's two different versions of the very same story. In one, David is prominent, and the other, he isn't. How do I reconcile those two things? And when I was a kid growing up, it was Schofield Bible and a clear note there that says, well, this is another Goliath. He might be a cousin or something uh-huh. like that. But <laughs> yeah. obviously, I mean, even as a kid, I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> he has a cousin? Um, but then Alter talks about, well, these are clearly two stories or two versions of the same story, one of which has been given over to David. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, he says, because that elevates David as, um, in terms of a, a heroic figure. Hmm. So it may never have been the case that David, um, well, maybe perhaps in the original versions of those stories, David may be completely irrelevant to that. Mm-hmm. That really interests me. Does he talk about like an, like an oral tradition? And, and, and Which is exactly what he says. Okay. There is a sort of A version out there yeah. or that existed at one point, now long gone, probably oral. 
but but he's skeptical of it in a, yeah. a way that's healthy. I think absolutely. I, d- I just read his Art of Biblical Narrative. Yeah. Uh, a friend, a classicist, recommended it to me. I was really blown away by the depth of his insight. Yeah. See, I've been following Augustine for a long time, who's making apologies for the Gospels because they're written at a low level, right? Oh, really? The the style of the Gospels in Greek is very low, and in Augustine's time, people complained. Why should I read the Gospels? It's when I can read good literature. And Augustine's comment was typically, well, it's written that way to humble you. You know, you have to get on your knees to approach it. And I still think that that's legitimate, but I I now have kind of repented of how quickly I have dismissed some of the aspects of the style in Genesis in particular. These are really complicated, brilliantly crafted stories. I had no idea. Right. Even the way he leaves out the article, for example, in... um, in the, in the King James, you would say something like, um, so it wasn't the, this was the first day or something, mm-hmm. the creation story or whatever. Um, but with Alter, and I can't remember it exactly, but he leaves out the, so it isn't the first day, it is first day, mm-hmm. it is second day, it is third day, and gives a good explanation, which I can't pull up right now. But even reading it that way, you suddenly see there is a style here that I knew nothing about. Right. And putting that style onto it or looking at that text through that lens changes so yeah. much and, and makes you see it in a different way. When I teach um, the Greco-Roman classics in translation, yeah. uh, just that constant reminder of, of um, translation is not the thing itself. We're in the middle of doing an extended series on the Odyssey. One of the things we've talked a lot about is, you know, once you understand kind of what Odysseus's name means or, or what um, uh, Eumaeus means, it just adds a whole layer to it. Sure. So like knowing Hebrew is like, you just miss this whole you miss other. It all. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. very much. Yeah. So with the Odyssey, uh, Gary, one thing that I really noticed about your book and enjoyed about all the books is the way that you frame the action. The action is well framed with mundane human activities. And so when I first encountered the Odyssey in grad school, my professor Jack Holtzmark said, it's a domestic epic. Every uh-huh. 20 lines, someone is either weeping or eating. And these are the fundamental aspects of human life. So right. in Pay Attention, Carter Jones, there's a lot of eating. There's mm-hmm. a lot of scenes. And uh, in, I think it's in trouble, a lot of description of the weather, the changing weather patterns and so forth. And it would be easy to say, you know, that's just filler, you know, to the, to the action. But it doesn't have that effect if, if you're really patient with it. I think it, it sets the novel up completely. Yeah, I hope so. It's um, in trouble. It was something of a joke, actually. The, you're supposed to start in the middle of things for a particularly young adult novel. So you have to have action. That's the sort of general rule of it. Okay. So there's got to be some engagement, some big deal, some movement, whatever it is that's going to bring you right into the story. That's the kind of general rule out there. Trouble starts with about a dozen pages of, of description. Mm-hmm. And it goes on and on with that description. And no kidding, that was truly a, a joke. Huh. I, I sent it to the editor. I knew her, her name is Virginia Buckley. I absolutely knew she was going to cut it all because she was the one who was just so rigorous about mm. that kind of an opening. And so it was a complete joke. It's the manor house. It's the coast. It's all this past history. And I thought, okay, we'll start at, start at the beginning of chapter two and it'll just be a laugh with Virginia. Mm. But she liked it. Ah. And so it remained. I really did not think that she would have let it remain. But it was. It works, I guess. Um, and it does set up the coast and the past history and the nature of that house, which is almost a character in the book. Or mm-hmm. I think of it as a character oh, in the book. Oh, definitely. And I think that book 
Well, I may not be remembering the right one. I better be careful here because <laughs> I, I read the very famous line. Uh, this is a spoiler alert. Uh, right before the the woman dies and the organist uh, when he's playing the organ. That that's oh, in Lizzie that's Bright. That's Lizzie Bright. Yeah, that's yeah, in Lizzie yeah. Bright. And that's the one where the breeze, right? The breeze plays the the constant role of right. almost a narrator, it seems. And is meant to be the breath of God. And I meant it in a very Hebrew sense that. Um, which is generally a female hmm. version, where there's this real presence. Uh, and in the book, it starts out as a very playful presence, so almost like a dog um, playing with him in the hall, for example, when mm-hmm. he goes into Mrs. Cobb's house and whirling around. But it's just playful, but it's still there. He's still aware of it. As the book progresses, I hope, um, that gets more and more serious mm-hmm. until at the end, when he again senses that, that sea breeze, it's a very serious moment, a really turning point moment for, yeah. um, for Turner. And of course, that's very subtle. It goes beneath the level of consciousness, I suspect. I'm not sure how many readers, particularly young readers, would say, oh, yeah, and, and in the Jewish tradition, this is the way the breath of God works. Hmm. And so look at what he's doing there. Probably not. Um, but for me as a writer, it changes how I use it, how I use that particular motif. Now, one of the things that um, when David and I were talking about doing this episode with you was we um, talked about in, in many of your books, there's um, there's often a thread that kind of calls the, the reader back to something. There's some of the core. Um, you know, baseball shows up a lot in The yeah. Wednesday Wars, which I just finished with my son, uh, Shakespeare. Yeah. I wonder if you could just kind of talk about, you know, when you're thinking about writing a new book, is that something you kind of start with, oh, this is going to be a hook and I'm going to build it around that, or does, is it more organic than that? Um, I think both of those are sort of true. I have to find that hook, that's, that thread that goes through the book as I start to write it. Um, so right now, for example, I'm working on a manuscript in which a kiddo has lost his parents at the beginning and has to find his way back into trust. I mean, if you can't trust that your parents are going to be there tomorrow, then what do you trust? And he has a really wonderful teacher um, who's actually Danny Hupfer from um, oh, yeah. Wednesday Wars. He's come, that's a generation later. And he is, um, he's smart, I mean, this teacher. And he knows that this kid needs something that is consistent and solid through the course of this year after his parents or dad are, have passed away. So in his class, he is actually working with the Greek myths and he assigns each kid a year-long project. Ah. The project that he assigns to my kid, whose name is Hercules, his brother's Achilles, is fun. Whom you still don't like, Whom just, I still don't just like. for the record. I know, right. Okay. But it's, um, the, the, prob- the, the, the task that he assigns are the labors of Hercules. Yeah. And he wants him to recast those and perform those in the modern world. So to take you know, the, the Nemean lion, uh, which is caught, and how is he going to perform that in the modern world? And it gives him a kind of consistency. It also, as the, as the stories go on, um, like with the Hydra, Hercules has to depend upon his mm-hmm. nephew. Right. He yes. can't do it alone. Elias. And so you have that story, mm. um, the notion that this kid has to dis- depend on other kids to trust other kids in this, in this case. And each one of those labors, I hope, when this is all done, will then lead to the point where you are, um, where he's learning, he's growing throughout the course of this, um, this enactment. And each one is followed by his, he has to write a 150 word reflection, which is really fun to do, to write in a, a sixth grade or seventh grade voice. voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. And you know, to write, it's not just the oral voice, but the written voice mm. in the seventh grade. Yes. <laughs> and then it's followed by the, um, the comment from the teacher, from Danny Hupfer, um, about what, how he's doing that. 
And that, has, that gives me the whole structure of the book. I've got 12 labors. I know I've got nine months. Um, I know where he lives. He lives on Truro on Cape Cod. Um, I know that he is hurting at the front end and that this is about healing and that he's got this mentor teacher who's going to who's doing this specifically yeah. aiming at him to try and, mm. and heal um, so that kind of came early um, some of them came later and some of them get dropped so in uh, this one called just like that which was going to be all about music and the harp specifically so Merrill Lee is Merrill Lee's book yeah. Merrill Lee was going to learn how to play the harp and which was hysterically funny. It's such a funny instrument, right? I mean, it it's is. so big, and you can do funny things, but you can have her fall back with it, and on and on. I think imagine just the comedy of having to hold that thing just around. Hold it. Right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that all got cut. Oh the man, whole, the whole thing got cut. I worked on it forever, and you know, went with, to people to show me how to play the harp. And hmm. so you're really doing a lot of research. There. I was, yeah. and it just didn't work. <laughs> it just felt dumb. It just, hmm. it just wasn't working at all. Well, the Autobahn, not to interrupt you, but no, the Autobahn, right. that was brilliant. That, I, that I really enjoyed well. that. In part because it's very unusual to most people's experience. Absolutely. And even more unusual was cricket. Yeah. <laughs> It'd pay attention, Carter Jones, and I'm thinking, oh, Gary, I don't know, cricket, can, yeah. you, can you pull that off? But Do you know, I remember seeing, and I suppose I was in college, an old version of this Goodbye, Mr. Chips. It was a film. Hmm. And then bought the book afterwards. And there, the whole film, I, I don't think anyone has ever seen that lately. Uh, it must have been the 30s or, f I guess, 30s. Anyway, in that film, there's a scene, and in the book, a scene when Mr. Chips, who was not enjoyed as a teacher, he's just a terrible, terrible classics teacher. All the kids give him a hard time. It's just really awful. He then goes out one afternoon when the kids are playing cricket, and he takes the bat. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks, really, I mean, this is going to be a joke. Well, he turns out to be amazing, hmm. amazing. And that turns his relationship with those kids around. I've never forgotten that. Huh. It just struck me as so interesting. So yeah, that was, uh, it's also a challenge, right? I had oh, no sure. idea how to do it. Sure. And then to convey it to an American audience. Right. And I was super fortunate that there was, um, the book was published in New York and in London simultaneously. So there was a British editor and her, she had a 15 year old boy who plays cricket. So she was fantastic <laughs> um, correcting me and um, changing some of the terminology and all of that. Hmm. It was really helpful. But yeah, it's, I often try and find that, that thing that's going to take me through the whole yeah. book that creates a structure um, that will help me. And then I can play with the notion of, well, how does this kiddo change over the course of this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so in trouble, it's the journey up to Katahdin. Mm-hmm that does that yes yeah i enjoyed that so much the the, Her the hercules that sounds i mean as a classicist that sounds that sounds fabulous right it's like well, cat it's fun enough, right it's <laughs> super fun and there's a problem that he's a lot of them are a lot alike like he gets the golden deer he gets the lion he gets the boar and blah 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 but i have to find ways that are interesting um in this story that i can then develop into something that will connect with him plus obviously i have to figure out how are you going to take the hydra and reenact that sure. in, yeah. in today's world. And, yeah. and, and having to write a report is like Heracles, Hercules had to prove these things to Eurystheus, right? He'd always had to, to, to right. show this guy. Right, right. Or, or just you know bring him, bring right. the boar, for example, yes. into, into right, show right. him. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there has to be all of that. And some, so, of those, some of those scenes where he's carrying back the Aramanthian boar, 
uh, in some of them, he's lowering the boar down into the amphora, and Eurystheus <laughs> yes, has this giant jar to right. hide from That's these. Right. He's terrified exactly. of what's going to break the through next. The boar is going snout first, <laughs> and in others, the boar is going the other way first. Right. <laughs> Both ends are terrifying. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, that's great. So, I mean, I, I've been long fascinated by Hercules because he's one of those rare characters in Greek myth that can straddle the world of comedy and tragedy sure. so well, right? And and he's and he's also this a deeply human character in terms of it. Yeah. He, he's a you know that that kind of Sophoclean notion of suffering into truth. And Heracles, a lot of his heroism, a lot of his relatability is 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 the way that he suffers. He doesn't. Yeah. He does these. He does these labors to expiate his guilt, not to mm-hmm. really gain you know a kingdom or a throne or a glory. It's it's to get the blood guilt of murder off of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just makes it just a unique, yeah. a new character. Yeah. I think what's also what, what I'm finding is to what are the links between them? So here's labor four, labor five. Does it matter that he's done labor four as you approach labor oh, five? yeah. And there are times it does seem hmm. to. So there's a, uh, like going after the golden hind there, it takes him a year. Right. It's a whole year before he gets it. Of the next running. one is the boar. Yeah. yeah. The next one is the boar, which... <laughs> Before he scares out of the cave, he makes sure that there's a big snowbank over here. Yes. And so he scares him out, presses him against the snowbank, and got him. <laughs> and you have to think, okay, he is not going to go for another year. Right. I'm yeah. spending a year right? going after this pig. Right. Yeah. And there, there are also other harder questions. Why is it that sometimes the gods are there to help him? I mean, at the beginning you get Apollo who gives him a bow, mm. um, Athena gives him a robe, um, Vulcan gives him a, a breastplate. And there are moments, for example, with the carnivorous birds. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah, yeah, where they help them. You know, Vulcan gives him um, brass rattles to scare the birds up. And Athena brings those rattles to him. So why does he get help then? But why doesn't he get help at some of the other ones? Yeah. And, you know, that's, any, any person of faith has to ask, well, why does God show up, God show up now, hmm. but doesn't show up here? Mm-hmm. And, of course, in the book, this kid is quite right to ask, you know, why did God show up hmm. when my parents needed him most? Yeah. Hmm. And that's a sort of deeper question that goes beneath it. And I think those um, labors sort of are helping me, I think, I hope. We'll see how the book turns out <laughs> um, in terms of asking that question in a way that's engaging for a middle school reader. Right. I'm eager to see what you're going to do with the Augean stables, because that is my favorite. Uh, you know, he, um, he breaks down the wall, he directs two yes. into it. Uh, two rivers into it, and there's that the whole problem it has to be done in a single day. Yes. Um, and he shows unusual intelligence for the character of Hercules. Yeah. He's mostly brute. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but here, yeah. here there's some real uh, brains. But involved. then he takes payment for it, and so it doesn't count. That's I mean, oh, right. No, he right. doesn't. He right. doesn't get payment. Uh, He's supposed to get all the cattle, but he gets half. Well, and. I don't know. He's the. How do you say the guy, the king's name is Augeus? Aegeus. Uh, Aegeus. Promises to him 10% of all the cattle that he has, which right. would be huge, right? But he sends his son in order to make sure, he's as a witness, to make sure that Hercules does what he does. Mm. When Hercules finishes it one day and the son, um, he comes back, then the king says essentially to him, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is one of your labors, so you should just do this for free. Right. Oh, right, right, Hercules right. is yeah. really ticked, and, and the son stands yeah. up for Hercules. Right. After all the labors are done, Hercules goes back mm-hmm. and he kills the king. 
and puts the yes. son on the throne. Exactly. Right. That's right. That's right. So yeah. it's there's a kind of I'm not sure if I'm going to actually include much of that. In this, <laughs> it in would this be difficult. Novel. Yeah, it'd be hard. Right. But, you can do <laughs> but it is interesting. I mean, Hercules doesn't forget slights. Right. No. He keeps them up. That's part of but being yeah, a hero. St- stable yeah. full of stable full of manure. Funny. Yeah. Murder. Not so funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is funny, right? Manure is always funny. It's of always course. funny. Exactly. Yeah. Always. Rest, wrestling with the two river gods. That's the one that always gets my students right. How did oh. he wrestle with the river with gods? The river gods. Well, well, look, you know, I'm not a biology professor. You got <laughs> to ask someone else. Just enjoy the story. Yeah, right. Enjoy the story. So, so the Aeneid. This is in. Um, this is in Lizzie Bright. Right. 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 And of course, as I'm reading it, this is my life as <laughs> part of it. Why did you choose to cover that? And and what was that experience like? That was that was hard actually. Um, it's been a long time since I was serious about Latin, and I don't, don't have any Greek. So I needed that story. That, I mean, one of the reasons I chose Aeneid was because it's you know, Latin, and I wanted to have that connection with his father, who studies Latin. So that was a simple decision. Then after that, though, it was really, really hard to figure mm. out how that's going to play out. So it's not just a thing that you throw in there. Yeah. So like the Audubon prints, I didn't want them just to be an illustration but that there is some real connection to what's actually happening in the mm. narrative. So it's connected. It's, it's all one thing. Mm-hmm. And with that one, there is that scene of, um, of Aeneid leaving Troy mm. and just deciding, well, what next? Right. What next? And sort of Turner is at that scene, at that moment when he is asking, what next? Mm. What's the next thing? Because what's here, what's happening to him was pretty awful. Yeah. He's just so unhappy at that. Yeah. It was very artfully done. I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that very much, the inclusion of the Aeneid there. Oh, good. I'm glad. Today's episode is also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. The good people at Ratio have been helping to caffeinate the world for some years now with their aesthetically robust, dynamically effective line of premium coffee makers. Tara, why don't you tell our listeners how the Ratio machines work? Well, it's quite simple, Jeff. Instead of having your precious brew trickle down through a plastic basket into some cheap glass carafe sitting on a hot old burner, the ratio sends 200-degree Fahrenheit water soaring through a Fibonacci showerhead. It then sits in the bloom stage for a few minutes, allowing all of the harsh carbon dioxide to off-gas, depositing it into the hand-blown borosilicate glass or stainless steel carafe, consistent delicious coffee. No brackish tang. So I understand that the ratio eight is all sold out, but its its little brother, the six, at a more attainable price point, is still available in both black, matte, and white stainless. That's right. So listen up, ad nauseates. Go to ratiocoffee.com right now and get a 15% exclusive discount on the ratio six. Between now and March 20th, 2021, go to ratiocoffee.com and enter special code ANCO for 15% off the Ratio 6. That's A-N-C-O, ratiocoffee.com. Don't not check it out. Today's episode also brought to you by Odd Ostra Coffee Roasters of Hillsdale, Michigan. That's right, Jeff. Odd Ostra brews a delicious, I should say roast, you got to do your own brewing, a delicious cup of coffee. You got some in the mail recently, right? I did. It was great stuff. We got four different bags of different uh, roast, light, medium, and dark. Just great stuff. They got the poetry series where each bag of coffee features a poem from people like Wordsworth and other great poets. Yes. I, did. I drank uh, some real cup this morning. Oh, I had some too. Delicious in the cup, isn't it? It is. Fantastic. So what can the Ad nauseum listeners do to lay their hands and palates on some of this coffee? Well, 
Ad nauseum listeners can go to adastroroasters.com, adastro, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, roasters.com. You mean they have a Latin name too? They do. Yes, uh, to the to the stars. Yes, to yes. the stars through coffee. Ad Astra per cafea. Cafea, yes. So adastroroasters.com. Check out um, some of their delicious offerings. And uh, as an ad nauseum listener, you get 10% off by entering the coupon code ANAA. That's ANAA. Go to Ad Astra, A-D-A-S-T-R-A, roasters.com for 10% off. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Since 1972, Hackett Publishing has been an independent publisher of high-quality translations in the field of classics, as well as many other corners of the humanities. Sophia, Hackett's growing classic list includes hundreds of titles covering ancient history, literature, philosophy, political science, and classical language study. Dr. Wrinkles, their classical lit catalog is loaded, Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, Metamorphosis, and do they have Herodotus, Sinead, Dubio? What about those Tiber dwellers? Anything on those toga-wearing folks? Of course. Hacka has titles on Ancient Rome, too, with translations of Suetonius, Livy, and more. I especially love the Hans Orberg series Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Okay, AN crew, save 20% on any order and receive free shipping from Hackett Publishing. All you have to do is go to hackettpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com. Find the text you want. Enter AN2021 in the box, which asks for the coupon code. Don't hesitate. Check out hackettpublishing.com today. Um, I got to share just a few of my memories of, of being your student. A couple of things that, that stuck out. One, and you have to correct me if, if I'm wrong, if I'm not remembering this right. One thing I remember you saying in class or, or telling me specifically is that your mom had Billy Joel as a student. Is that true? She was in the high school that Billy Joel attended. Okay. Oh, so <laughs> classmate. So, um, no, she was, she was a special ed teacher. Mm. Before there really were special ed teachers, my mother was a special ed teacher in, in the high school. And that meant that her time was really quite flexible. And she claims, and I hope this is true and not just a figment of her memory, um, but she claims that Billy Joel would leave classes or would cut classes and would go down to the auditorium and would then play, would just oh. would play on the piano. It's completely plausible. It, it is plausible. It seems really likely, in fact. Yeah. Um, I hope that that's true. But she says that she would go down and just listen. Just listen to, uh, to this kid. I mean, you know, you didn't know anything about it, but to this kid who's playing piano so artfully, and she couldn't believe it. Um, my father was also a really good piano player, but he, he used to talk about having Baptist fingers huh. to play hymns. Um, and that's what he did, and he was really, really good at that. Yeah. But I think he probably, Billy Joel, was not playing Baptist <laughs> with Baptist fingers. And she just loved it. Oh, oh, that's that's great. Well, that memory was was more or less yeah, on. Point. I hope it's true. Yeah. Now, another thing I remember, I remember from from that class, and I'm hoping it to connect to our larger conversation here is when I took the class, the subject that you were working on was hell mouths. Mm-hmm. Is, is that correct? Did you work on hell mouths? Yeah, the mouth of hell. Yeah. And, um, Mostly in, in Middle English stuff. Okay. Um, Middle English stuff. Middle, Middle English works. Yeah. Um, and that book, that book finally did get done. It was the dissertation to, and you know, it's the pattern of so many, right? You finish your, your dissertation, you put it away for five years, yeah. yeah. you go back and you write it, you see everything you said wrong. five years ago is wrong. Right, right, right. But you've had five years to reflect on it, and yeah. you've studied more, and that's, so that book got done, wow, back in the early 90s, okay. I guess. Yeah. And it was fascinating. It was the the way that we choose to embody that that idea, hell, that we are eaten 
by something mm. ferocious, something monstrous. Mm. Um, and of course, Dante does the same thing. And it's it's amazing. It's an amazing image um, and a vivid, really vivid image. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was an amazing time. It made an impact on you, Jeff. It did. Like Thirty well, you know, years it, on. One now. of the things that I'm I'm working on is I'm fascinated with. Um, Urban legends, oh. American urban legends, and one of the things that you find across the country there are these these places that are uh, purported to be entrances to hell. You find, oh, you find this the world over, and, and one of the concepts that I'm fascinated with in is kind of the the concept of kind of liminality. You know, being stuck in this in between place. Mm. And you're I, gonna I bring out that, bridginess now. I'm talking about yeah. We're not gonna go <laughs> full, full bridginess. Get moss. But I, it struck me is that I, I wonder if that your young adult literature. You know, middle school is is amongst the most liminal times absolutely. in our lives, right? It's, it's that you, you're kind of you're not you're not a kid, you're not an adult, and you're just kind of stuck in this in between place. And I wonder if that the liminality of the hell mouth, the the, the, the threshold experience, or, or is anything connect with you as you kind of yeah. think about your characters? That's really interesting. I've never really thought about that, with with one exception. Um, but first, the, the liminality of that of, yeah. of middle school or the middle school life is. Absolutely right at the center of what I do. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, if you're a middle school kid, you can can be at one moment 10 years old and act like a 10-year-old. And then in a few minutes later, you're acting like you're 25. Yeah. The amazing sway back and forth at in the age of middle school is so interesting and creates tremendous tension, right? Because you are on the one moment facing childhood with all of its safety one hopes with all of its safeties and and home and all that and then you are also facing adulthood with all of its responsibilities and moving towards individual responsibilities that to have those two things together is so interesting Mm. and because in our culture we don't really have a moment when someone says now you are an adult we yeah, have maybe a driver's license is the closest we I have guess. to that. Although a lot of kids today aren't getting them, apparently. No, that's true. It's, it's changed. But. but there's that's really... So what is it? What has to happen in a kiddo's life to help that person move on towards adulthood? What's mm. the thing? Yeah. And in some ways, all of the books are me exploring that. What's the thing that has to happen in your life that enables you to go past the moment of looking back to childhood towards adulthood? Right. And we all know people who never make it. We all know people who make it very early. Mm-hmm. Um, so there isn't something fixed. So what is it? Right. What has to happen? Well, it might say the, the central character in Wednesday Wars. He's not. Uh, he's not one of the Catholics, and he's not. He's not Jewish. No. And so he's, he doesn't get a confirmation. He doesn't get a bar mitzvah. No. There's these moments that tell you that he's, you are an adult, right? That's exactly why he's there. Yes. Right? Exactly right. Yeah. Right? yeah so yeah, what's yeah. the thing? And at the end, when he finally takes responsibility and says, you know, I I choose. I choose what um, what it is to believe, and and that is an adult. Moment. So when when it's when do you say I choose to believe this in my faith tradition because I choose it, not because I'm inheriting yes. it from my parents? Mm. Yes, yes, yes. That's a huge, huge step. Or even I choose this vocation because I choose it. This is where I see my gifts. This is where I'm interested um, in what I'm interested in pursuing, not what do my parents right. want me to pursue. Those are huge moments in someone's life, and they are steps towards adulthood. Yeah. So did did you have tremendous compassion? I'm not asking you to you know <laughs> brag, but the novels of yours that I've read, they seem to have a lot of compassion uh, for the suffering of these liminal times in people's lives. To use Jeff's language, middle school. I don't find I'm an especially compassionate person <laughs> by any stretch. <laughs> so I wonder, did you did you have that sense when you began to write? Has your compassion grown through the experience? Or what would you say? Or is it more technical and distant? 
No, it isn't technical and distant. It is, it is, I think I know a scene is working when I am feeling the emotions of the scene, particularly scenes of loss okay. or, or you know, terrible disappointment or maybe elation um, or connection. If I'm feeling that emotion, I mean, if I'm crying when um, this happens, that's, that tells me something is good. And I can't force it, right? You right. can't manipulate it. That's just a hack thing to do. Um, but if you feel that because you're writing out of your guts and out of what you most deeply believe, then you're feeling, at least I, that's for me a sense that this is going. Something true is happening here, I should say. And I don't think you could work, I mean, I go see a lot of middle schoolers. Um, I go to about 40 or 50 schools a year. Wow. Um, I don't think you can go to those places and meet those kids and get their letters and see some of the things that they say yeah. without feeling like, okay, these kids are under pressures we can hardly believe. Hmm. I got a letter two days ago, and a young woman who had just read Pay Attention, and the letter was how um, every day my, my dad breaks me, breaks me, breaks me, breaks and she just wrote that again and again, and breaks me, breaks me. I don't even know what that means, that yeah. my dad breaks me. Hmm. But I mean, imagine saying that when you yeah. are, she's in sixth grade. And again and again, those letters mm. that, that come um, that are filled with pain. Mm. Um, and we all, we can all remember uh, middle school as a difficult time. Everything is changing. Mm. And so it's, it is, of course, difficult. But it's quite stunning to see, mm. to, to get those letters or to meet kids, um, to go to a prison, and it's a prison for eighth grade boys. Yeah. They're Jeez. eighth grade boys. Huh. <laughs> And you just go, really? How could this possibly be that we in America have prisons for eighth grade boys? Mm, yeah. And I was in one where there were there were twenty kids or forty kids in the facility. I was with twenty of them. Of those kids, none, none had seen a parent for months, mm. for months. And it was way north, and distance may have something to do with it. But to not see your parents and you are in prison, yeah, yeah, you know, it's what is it now? It's it's three o'clock. In an hour and a half, those boys will stand in front of a, a gate, and that gate will open. You can't believe what that sounds like. And the kids will walk into those cells individually, and then the gate will slide across and will go click. Hmm. And they're there until 6.30, hmm. 14 hours. And we do that in America. Hmm. So yeah, I don't think you can work with this, with this age group if, uh, if you don't care about them. Hmm. And I think teachers for middle schools would have to say that too, right? I mean, you often hear teachers will say something like, wow, that's the hardest group to work with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You, you go see middle schoolers. Yeah, or yeah. I was at one visit where a principal said, oh man, these are middle schoolers. You know, if you want to stop after just a few minutes, fine. Wow. I was the principal. <laughs> wow. And they were great. They were fine. But um, I don't think you can work with that age group without having a sense that this is important. This is an important moment in their lives, and I get to be a part of that. Yeah. What a privilege. And so this is part of orbiting Jupiter, right? Absolutely. And you, you both told me a story uh, this past summer that you met an individual whom, um, this kind, who, who spoke to you. Maybe you don't want to talk about it on air. I don't know. But uh, for whom it was a very, uh, very real experience, part of the, the story of the, of the novel. Um, and also, I, w I would say it's the saddest of all the novels by far. Yeah. And other people have commented on that to me as well. There was a, an eighth grade kiddo, and uh, we were, it was a school south of Chicago, and we were walking in. It was going to be 400 eighth graders in a gym. That's a fun thing. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so 
So um, as we're walking in, and of course they're all up, they're out of class, right? So you know, eighth grade, you're out of class, that's pretty cool. We're all walking to the gym and this one kid comes next to me and he whispers in the middle of this crowded hall, um, but I could hear him and he said, you wrote my biography. Hmm. Oh man. And so, and he said, he's an eighth grade kid, he's been in juvie twice. The second time he was in juvie, um, his girlfriend, whom he had gotten pregnant, um, had an abortion. Hmm. And she was an eighth grader too. And he said, I wanted the child. He said, I wanted the baby. I wanted the baby. But she had an abortion. Hmm. And you look at this kid who then goes and sits in the front bleacher and who's just crying. And you're thinking, really? 14? You're 14 years old and you have these issues yeah. to deal with? Unbelievable. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever, when, you, when you're writing and thinking about writing, do you think about does it, the question, like, you know, what can kids handle and to your mind, like, like one of the authors that my boys love is Lemony Snicket, yeah. which is, you know, you can get pretty bleak, yeah. right? And, and yeah. if you like written a scene and you thought, that's too much. Yeah, you know, I do think about that a lot. Um, and there's great stories about other writers who have fronted that. Um, Robert Cormier, who's a devout Catholic writer, who is, um, in a, his most famous book is The Chocolate War. And there's a scene there where there's, that he wrote in which the sort of malevolent middle school kid, or high school kid, I guess, um, is trying to come up with a really, really terrible prank. I mean, not just funny, uh, but really destructive and humiliating. And he's trying to come up with it um, in his room late at night. And he performs a sexual act on himself. And after Cormier writes it, he is, he goes, no. I'm just not going to go there. Hmm. And he just ends the whole thing. He just takes that whole scene and throws it away. And so it doesn't even appear in the book. That's, that, I think of that a lot. Am I doing something in this book that will really be hurtful to a kid? Am I bringing up a topic that will be really hurtful for a kid? And you know, on the other side, you do think not every book should be for every kid. That's a good point. Yeah. That, okay, there are some books, you know, not every book is good for every adult. Right. Sure. And so there will be some kids for Orbiting Jupiter who will, um, who will really, really chime with that book, and there will be some kids who are, would have no idea how to handle it. Um, and okay, I guess that's, that's sort of the way it is. Yeah. You, know, you make a choice on that. And there are kids, <laughs> well, I was in New York a while ago, and there were four classes of eighth graders I was meeting, and they'd all read Orbiting Jupiter. Huh. You cannot believe how angry they were um, at the ending of that book. I mean, really angry to the, to the point that for the fourth group, after three times getting yelled at, I, was, I finally said, okay, before we begin today, you do realize this is a novel, right? right. This is a novel. I really didn't kill anyone. Yes. Okay, you get that. And they didn't care. I guess that's a testimony to the artistry, right? It's, belie- it's believable. <laughs> I hope so. Right? They didn't just say, oh, it's make-believe. And it really yeah, deeply yeah. impacted them. Can we talk about comedy for a little bit? I've really appreciated this. But sure. one of the questions that I have when I had when I was reading OK For Now, which is the funniest one by far, is um, do you have a difficult time uh, stopping at points, the, the comic scenes? Oh. Do you have the sense of, boy, this is really going well and this is funny? I would have a hard time refraining from, you know, yeah. drawing more humor out of the, uh, trying to, out of the episode. But you have a wonderful alternation between serious and silly. And what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. Um, 
Well, that alternation is our lives, right? I mean, there are days when something really crummy happens. Yes. And that's followed by something hysterically fun. I mean, we have classes like that, too. Right. right? <laughs> where, where comedy and tragedy or pathos are just all mixed together. And, I mean, that's kind of how we live. Mm-hmm. We, we live with that all working out. And as adults, we're used to that pattern, and we can handle that sort of um, movement back and forth. Um, the younger you go in writing, I think it's it's more and more difficult to mm. do that because it feels that that's not something that a kid can handle easily. Um, but yeah, I want to show that this is what life is like. Mm. I don't. We don't think we live unrelievedly depressed on hopes or unrelievedly happy and, and excited. I mean, we are always going back and forth. Um, stopping is actually easier for me than you might imagine. Okay. Um, I, I write 500 words a day on a project, and I, I stop. Hmm. And I don't care how the horses are running. Um, I'm hmm. done. So that's word about two pages, really. It's really very short. It's a page and a half or so. Hmm. But I always stop at 500 words. I mean, so many of the great American writers have done that. So Steinbeck, he writes a letter to his editor, writes 500 words, and done. Um, Hemingway, you can look at his manuscripts. And you know how when we were kids, we put the number of, if you had to do 150 right. words or something, you yeah. put little words and the numbers next to it? He did that. Uh, and that right? he stops at 500 um, Jack London, who was our most prolific novelist, he mm. wrote more than anyone else, 500 words a day. Huh. Wow. And so it feels like it's more about the consistency and discipline than it is about having really big days or short days um, in terms of pr- productivity. So it's not hard for that, but comedy is wicked hard for me. Hmm. It's really, really hard. What do you think makes it difficult? Because oh, I, wish I, I think you're an amusing I think person. It's, I think it's way harder to be funny than to what be What would tragic. you know about that? <laughs> I just know I have a really difficult time being funny. <laughs> I, my I wife says so. <laughs> it, it can be corny, right? Yeah. It, it right. can be lame. And again, if you're writing for a middle school audience, they are not going to put up with lame. That's true. <laughs> um, so you want it to be funny. You want it to be organically funny so that it arises out of the real situations. Um, sometimes repetition works where you have something which appears here and then later on, yep. it, it comes here. And because it comes here, it's really funny. Yes. Um, so, but it, it, that means you have to really have a good handle on everything that you've written before. It's, I find it very difficult. Yeah. So that, those, those passages are written and rewritten and rewritten and huh. rewritten again and again and again so that the timing is right, so that you're not drawing it out. Um, and again, so that it feels authentically funny. Yeah, it seems seamless after the fact, but I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, oh, spaghetti that goes into the process. Oh, but. I saw some of the first drafts. You ah. just go, oh my goodness. That's but it, but is terrible. it like what you were talking with the, the kind of the more tragic stuff? If you find yourself laughing, is it like a sign? Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm onto it. Yeah. yeah. It's easier for me with the tragic stuff, oddly, yeah? um, than for mm. the funny stuff. Mm. Um, and sometimes there are things which you don't intend to be funny, which a kiddo will say, yeah, that's mm. really funny. But yeah, there you just hope. Yeah. So, so Jeff, here'd be a good place to insert uh, what you told me about Mrs. Winkle's view of humor. I think that's kind of apropos. Oh yeah, you mentioned repetition, right? I think, and I think David and I are talking about this. I think there is a, there are broadly speaking, there are, there's masculine humor and feminine humor. And uh, oh, care, that, careful! I know <laughs> this is not going to go like, well with my guy friends. Yeah, uh, often repetition is key to the funny. Right, and my wife's of the regards. You'd said it once; it was funny. Don't say it again. <laughs> right? She'll often sure. just accuse me of using old material. Sure, but uh, I feel like the repetition of it is what, in some ways, is right. makes it funnier. Uh, who knows if this is going to be funny? But on this Hercules book, 
there's a scene early on where one of the kids is sort of challenging the teacher, who's ex-Marine. And he gives him this hard time about, well, do you think we should carry hatchets all the time? Um, and this ex-Marine just gives a kind of snarky response to that, and everyone's kind of laughing at the snarky responses. It's not particularly funny, I don't think. But I'm now a chapter, I've been working on chapter nine this morning, and there's a scene where the kid suddenly realizes, dang it, I need a hatchet. <laughs> and, and for me, that's really funny, so I'm laughing at that. I, but it all depends on whether the reader will remember what happened back in chapter one. Right, it's the grenade, you pull the pin, right? And then, yeah, yeah exactly. And then, and then, absolutely. That's great. So, Gary, I understand that uh, you have a real strong interest in Charles Dickens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, uh, indeed. And so let's talk about him a little bit. Okay, let's talk about We're him. We're going to give you the floor here and give you the stage. Okay. Well, there's, there's huge differences, right, obviously. Um, one of the things that Dickens is doing in this Victorian world of his is that his novels are about birth to death, pretty much, or birth to a, to a very, very mature time. So you've got just about any of the novels to look at, and you're following someone who's, whose lifespan is given to us. And often, as in so many Victorian novels, the books will end with that really short last chapter. So you've read you know, 7,000 pages, and suddenly in the last chapter you get the rest of the story. Hmm. That will take hmm. you all the way for, to the career. Um, and I love that. And, but the difference is that when you're writing for a middle grade audience, you're taking a very, very small slice of that so that I'm not showing birth to death. I'm showing just this one small time, maybe a year, or maybe a lot less than a year. Um, and I have to fill in, or suggest more than what Dickens can do where he can expand, and Lord knows he expands a lot. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't really have a whole lot of time to talk about, in a book about 13-year-olds say, I can't spend a huge amount of time talking about birth to age 12. I can suggest a lot and hit some highlights that I think are gonna impact what happens in the book, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that. So no pip in the cemetery kind of stuff. Neither can I then say, all right, at the end of the book, here's the rest of the story, that it goes on and on and on, um, or show his adult life or the character's adult life. So I can only do this, and everything else has to be suggested. That, to me, is kind of an interesting challenge. Hmm. So that when you end the book, I hope that you have a sense that, okay, because of these things that have happened this year, this character will be a certain kind of person. Yes. Or this character will be enabled, and I mean that in a good way, enabled to, to um, handle the things that are going to happen later on to him or to her. And that's very different from what a Victorian novel um, does. That's really interesting. On, on the other side of that, I really love um, what Dickens can do, particularly with child characters, um, because he loves particularly the downtrodden. Um, he is really, really incredibly sensitive to the downtrodden of Victorian England. And the fact that he can show that empathy is, um, is a model to me. Hmm. So in Bleak House, there's a scene when little Joe is, um, who's a street kid, um, who's a survivor. But now he's not, he's not gonna survive this night. And there are two characters with him who are standing beside him, but they're helpless. They have no idea what to do. And he is quickly moving towards death. And it's a sentimental scene, I get it. Um, and he starts to say the Lord's Prayer and doesn't quite make it until he finally dies. Hmm. But he does die. And because Dickens is who he is, I mean, he could have just sentimentalized that on and on and on. But he actually stops the novel and he steps out 
this is not a narrator anymore. It's Dickens himself. He steps out of the novel, and he says to the reader, um, actually to, to more than the reader, he says, dead your majesty. And he's talking to Victoria. He's literally talking hmm. to Victoria, oh. dead your majesty, dead your right reverence, and you wrong reverence. Hmm. Dead your lords and ladies, and dying thus around us every day. That's an incredible passage. He's literally out of the novel saying, this is happening. This is happening to us. This is what our culture endures, it accepts. Right. Um, pay attention. Pay attention to it. I love that he, he's, he's able to show that hmm. astonishing empathy. Hmm. And I love, too, that he can be, I mean, you talked before about the sort of seriousness and pain of life mixed together with the, the humor of life. That's him. I mean, he can yeah. really show those sides. And I think the perfect example of that is, um, is Oliver Twist, where you come to the end of that book, and, here's, and he just focuses on the childhood of that character. He's gone through hell. I mean, it's just yeah. been awful. He's also gone through paradise. He's had this moment, these few moments, few days, with the person he doesn't even know is his great uncle yet, who loves him in a household that loves him, and then he's ripped away from that. Well, back and forth and back and forth, and at the end of that, he finally is able to escape you know, the bad guys. He's able to escape the street life. And you know that he's going to be okay. But you also know, and I find this incredibly moving, this is why I love it, you also know that he's forever affected, hmm. that he will be a different person because he has, he has spent time in the, in the slums and the byways and in the alleys. He has spent time with people who are really, really struggling. Hmm. Um, he has spent time in starving. I mean, all that stuff is at play, and he is not going to forget it. Hmm. So what's so cool is that at the, uh, when the first edition came out, um, and the first edition came out before all the serialized versions right. came out, there was a plate at the end, an illustration at the end, um, called the Fireside Plate. This is the end of Oliver Twist? Yeah, end of Oliver Twist. And that illustration showed Oliver with his great uncle and uh, everyone around him, and they're all sitting by the fireside, happy, and Dickens canceled it. It only appears in the first edition. He canceled that illustration. He does not want the mm. conventional happy ending. Hmm. Um, I think that's guts. Yeah. So, and I try and do that as much as I can. I don't want it to be a home. I don't want any novel to be a hallmark card. Yeah. Yeah. Because life isn't a hallmark card. No, but one really artful uh, thing that you have done, which I notice, is that the characters. Uh, make cameos in the various novels, yeah. but it's subtle, it's inconspicuous, and so it's they're intra-referential, right? right? But you have to pay attention, but you can see a little bit, so-and-so is now a coach, and so-and-so yeah. is now in this adult position. Yeah. So it's a satisfying uh, detail to know that the characters lived on, in, and I know that's deliberate, obviously, but it's, Absolutely. it's well done. And there's a, there's a pleasure in going, if you're working on this book, there's sort of a pleasure in revisiting a I'm character sure. from an earlier book and to see, okay, here's how I see the rest of their lives, because mm -hmm. you can only suggest it in the, in the book itself. And to have a character who is, um, well, at the end of Okay For Now, you don't know what happens with Lil, mm -hmm. and you don't know what happens with Doug. But if you read um, Pay Attention, Carter Jones, well, there's a character named Lil Swiatek. Right. And you know that her, <laughs> her uh, husband, Doug, has gone to Europe to study art. And, I mean, that, that's all that appears there, yeah. but you know the ending to the story. Yeah, it's, it's subtle and delightful. It's, yeah. it's quite nice. It's like Homer writing Nestor into the Odyssey, right? Yeah. He's obnoxious oh. a little bit in, in uh, the Iliad, but he comes off better. 
Yeah, oh, really? slightly less obnoxious. Okay, yeah. <laughs> a doddering old man. Right? Yeah. Okay, I got to ask the the settings of your of your books reflect a kind of bitterness of having been stuck in Michigan for, for <laughs> many years. I mean, clearly a love for the Northeast and uh, sure, but there are no tropical elements, right? In, in any of his <laughs> no, books, no, no, no sunshine I mean, and beaches and yeah, no, no. Um, but I just I was just talking with a guy about uh, wouldn't it be nice today because it was minus nine and out to the other yes. day. I said to this guy, wouldn't it be nice, I don't know, down to Florida for a few days? And he says, that state has nothing that I need. <laughs> and I'm like, it's got warm weather. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Citrus. Oh, but I do. I love New England. Yeah. Um, my family has been there since 16-aught-something. I mean, wow. It's just some crazy, crazy time. Um, and the weirdness of it is that there are maps of Raleigh, Massachusetts from the 1600s. And there is this, the house of Hugh Smith, which is my mother's side. But just down the street is the house of Thomas Stickney, who is my wife's side. Hmm. So they must have known each other. I mean, literally huh. just a few houses apart. Oh, that's apart, crazy. Um, which is just fun. Yeah. Just fun, huh? that's but incredible. you do, it's, you know, you sit in your, in your study, and there's the Border Collie, and there's the Woodstock Vaughn over here, and you've got your books around you, and, you know, St. Francis standing there. And... All of that's really cool. I really like that. But it is a kind of isolating thing. You're kind of alone. And it's a long task. I mean, a book is going to take two years. Right. So it's, there is a pleasure in um, putting yourself imaginatively in a setting that you really love. And so most of the books are in settings that I really, really love. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, heading to Katahdin, you know, obviously yeah. I love the, the mountain there. Um, and even in, in Orbiting Jupiter... That tie-up with the cows, I mean, I have milked cows in that tie-up, <laughs> and there is just a, an enormous pleasure in remembering those cold mornings, um, yeah. milking, milking Rosie. Yeah. And it's... Uh, and in First Boy, too, there's a lot and of... In First Boy, there's, there's a, a lot, lot of cow farm. milking. Right. Yeah. And so that's sort of fun. I, I really just like that. And you're right, I'm not... Um, I probably never will set a book in a setting I don't know at all, like, mm-hmm. you know, say in Arkansas or something. Um, but others will do that. And again, not every book is for everyone. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. But that's not sort of why. Yeah. 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 I like well, it. Yeah. Should we wrap it up here then? I think we, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's wrap it up. Well, we want to say a very uh, heartfelt thank you, Gary, for oh, thank you. coming out this afternoon. Yeah, this has been and fascinating. This has been a ton of fun. Oh, yeah. it's been so enlightening. Yeah. And, uh, we and hope I can't wait for the the, uh, the Hercules book. That sounds great. <laughs> we should either. probably talk about that one on air, probably. Do, Absolutely. Devote a yes. whole episode to yeah. that. Yeah, I can't wait to tell my boys about it. They're going to they're flip. That's great. Let's do September 1. September 1? Okay. Well, that, it's due to the publisher September 1. Okay. So it won't be out until the next year. So we can expect okay. it in 2022. 2022. And you Great. told me before that you don't choose the titles always or, or seldom. Oh, my. Hardly ever. So we don't, oh, really? we don't really know what it's yeah. going to be. Right now it's called The Labors of Hercules Beale. Oh. Um, and Beale is, Beale is taken from a London bookseller. Huh. He, he just sold me some really nice books and I just wanted to, I just, it just felt like the name was right. But I don't know. It might very well be that the that the house was saying, "Oh, forget that." Right. So I've only gotten a few titles of my own. Mm-hmm. Most of them are negotiated with the with the editor. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. Something to look forward to. All right, Jeff. Well, we got to get out of here. The Vomitorium is uh, is booked again. Once again, I think it is a pancake and fish fry night uh, again. Yes. Oh yeah. man. So they're beating at the door with their bottles of syrup and their. They leave a stank. Yes, they do. Yeah. But we want to say uh, to all of our listeners, thank you so much. We recently passed a milestone, up over 7,500 downloads now. It's great. Thank you so much for listening. You people must have nothing to do with your time, (laughs) so I can think. 
And we need to say uh, thank you to our wonderful sound engineer, Mishka. Mishka. And uh, to the guys that provide the intro and outro music, the generous, talented Ken Tamplin and Scott Van Zen. What if uh, our listeners want to leave some feedback, Jeff? What should they do? Well, they can contact either of us. Uh, if they have criticisms, they have ideas, they have praise, they can write to you at dave at odnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or to me at jeff at odnauseum.com. And uh, Jeff, didn't we promise that we would read on the air for episode 25? This is a packed episode, isn't it? Is it with Gary? We didn't promise that, did we? I think we did. Oh. One, of, one of our many foolish promises. Yes. To read some of the uh, reviews we've gotten. So let, let's have some of those. Okay. All right. You want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I just want, I mean, thanks to the listeners. I mean, the vast majority of these are just are really nice to read and they very are. complimentary. Uh, here's one. Um, that says, uh, great fun and great range. These, these hosts have great conversational chemistry and a lot to impart. It's easy listening, but I've absorbed a good deal of interesting information. It takes the broadest outlook of what you can think about through the study of the classics. Are they talking about us? I, 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 I guess so. <laughs> okay. Because some of these could be a mistake. So yeah. this one is five stars. It's from uh, Dr. Ed P. Homer would love it. No Ian Winkle, who could lecture on classics anywhere and before anyone, yeah, we try to do that, can also chat wonderfully for everyone on everything Man. classical. Wow. Quinquestelli. Man, fabulous, fabulous. We should probably read a negative one. Well, I, I got I got another five-star one here. All right, let's okay. hear it. This one is from uh, uh, B.D. Locklear, okay. who writes that this is the podcast that uh, B.D. apparently has been waiting for. It's great to finally have a substantive podcast done by two scholars who advocate for the classics as a way of life. Dr. Noe and Dr. Winkle know their stuff, but their humor is the secret sauce for this great podcast. Mm, that's really nice. I'm wondering once again, are they talking about us? <laughs> I like this one. This one's quite funny. Brugled Me Senseless yes. from uh, February 10. The classics with gusto. Dr. Noe and Dr. Winkle are learned. I think that's how that's pronounced, isn't it? Learned? Learned. Are learned enough to provide insightful commentary that is more but not less than a mere rehash of Wikipedia. <laughs> I'm ad-libbing here. While not sounding like you're sitting through a lecture, the topics can be like a large meal where you don't know where to start, but ad nauseum helps you acquire the tastes necessary to digest it in an incredibly palatable way. Wow. I, I like the, the gustatory buy-in. Yeah, there. they got that in there, didn't That's they? That's great. Very yeah. nicely done. All right. Uh, here's one that is, it's got five stars, but the, the content of the review is, mm. is uh, this is from uh, Mickeyus Porcius. Mickeyus Porcius? Uh, says, this is a podcast for the ages, and then writes, if you like dad jokes in Homer, this is for you. Oh, boy, that stings. Oh, man, that, ouch. Should we hang up our podcasting cleats at well, this point? I mean, we're both dads. Okay. And we both like jokes. And we both like Homer. That's right. It's a threefer. <laughs> Thank you, Mickeyus. <laughs> <laughs> Homogenous ice cream. That's, that's a funny title. But once again, five stars. Of course, this was way back in um, September of 2020. Oh, we were, we were just starting out. It seems like a year ago. It does. What did Homogenous Ice Cream say? Uh, homogenous Ice Cream, you got that? Oh, yes. Okay. I thought you were going to read it. No, you got it. Bingeable, exciting, informative, and funny. Although most bingeable podcasts don't typically reach back 4,000 years for their subject matter, Ad Nauseam deftly navigates this broad span. We are so deft. We are. Doctors Noe and Winkle bring a sense of humor, puns, and a dynamic back and forth to bring to life the joy of the classics. Come for the Spinal Tap references, stay for Polyphemus, Zinnia, and Cicero. A for these two professors. Wow. Well, we could have written it ourselves. Man. Did we write this one ourselves? You wrote that one. Okay. You? Right. Maybe. You wrote that. It was in August before we even started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. how, about, how about one more before we wrap it up? All right. Uh, I'll read this one. This is from Havel Havalim Amar Koheleth. Is, oh. that, is that Klingon? No, no, no. Yeah. It's, um, it's Hebrew. Hebrew. Okay. This person says, six stars, if I could. 
In the inaugural episode of Ad Nauseam, Dr. Noe and Dr. Winkle talked about the classes of way of life as a way of finding enjoyment in those moments not consumed by work, family, and the responsibilities of each day. I look forward to the episodes to come for the knowledge I'll gain and the enjoyment I'll have. Wow, that's really nice. We are so grateful to you listeners for taking the time to do that. All right, so Jeff, next week we go back to the Odyssey for episode 26. That's right. We got so much more to cover with that epic. And we're doing book nine, which is the big one. The big one. The Cyclops the, episode. The big guy with his giant eye makes his appearance. Yes. So, so tune in for that. And and you also have the gustatory parting quote, don't you? I do. This week uh, it comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who once said, there are only 10 minutes in the life of a pair when it is perfect to eat. Oh, so true. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.